This is a special presentation from ABC News. Uvalde 365, one year in the community. Here is correspondent Michelle Franson. It was a normal day in Uvalde last May with school winding down before the summer break. Teachers at Robb Elementary highlighted the achievements of young students that year in an award ceremony with parents also there. The computer award goes out to Maite Rodriguez. Other moms and dads recall sending their kids off to class. She came in and started waving at her and blowing her kisses and daddy loves you. A few hours later, a mass shooting would shatter this small Texas town. 21 lives lost, families fractured, and a community forever impacted. ABC News reporters and producers have been on the ground this past year, embedded with some of the victims' families and survivors. In the beginning, I think everyone was supporting each other because everybody knows each other. It's a very small town, very rural. So in the beginning, I think everybody rallied around these families. ABC News contributor and award-winning journalist Maria Elena Salinas is part of the Uvalde 365 team. But as time went by, these families began to feel like they were alone. She spent time with four mothers who lost their daughters in the shooting. We're going to make it a mom's day up. We should. Once a year. Their individual grief grew into a sisterhood of mothers. I asked Maria Elena about the women, their daughters, and how they found comfort in one another. We have Gloria Casares, who, who is the mother of Jackie Casares. We have Veronica Mata, the mother of Tess Mata, who has a, a, a sister. She has an older daughter. So you have a sibling there that is also suffering. Kimberly Rubio, the mother of Lexi Rubio, and, and the other one was Ana Rodriguez, the mother of, of Maite Rodriguez. Now, Kimberly Rubio has been probably the most vocal. She is one of the first people that I interviewed in Uvalde when I started my coverage right after um, the tragedy. Told her we loved her, we'll see her, pick her up later. I interviewed her and her husband. They were in very much in pain. We keep going over that because we always pick up our kids after the ceremonies. They always want to leave early. And at that moment, she was blaming herself. Usually a sign-out sheet. And there wasn't a sign-out sheet this time. And I didn't ask and she didn't mention it. She just walks off. And that was it. And it really struck me because she kept saying, you know, I'm the adult. I'm the one that made the decision to leave her there. That day was the last day of school. And Alexandra Rubio. After they received their awards, they they could either go home or they could stay and watch a movie together. And she wanted to stay and watch a movie too with the rest of, of the kids. And, and I let her do that. And because of that, she was blaming herself. So that pain of, you know, continuing to blame herself is something that's very deep. If I could go back. We'd be telling a different story. We'd be sitting here with you saying, thank God she came home. Tell us a little bit about these mothers and what drew them together in this unique way. Oh, it was very special the day that I had the opportunity to spend an entire day with these four women. You know, it, it's very difficult to sit down and talk to them because they don't really want to talk. However, thanks to the Uvalde 365 team that has sort of forged this relationship with them and treated them, you know, with so much respect and so much honor, you know, they, they, they accepted to sit down and, and talk about something that 
is uh, uniquely special to them. We didn't sit and talk about their daughters. We sat and talked about them and how they have forged what we call a sisterhood, but they call it something else. I think it's a club. It's a club? It's a club. Unfortunately, it's not a club anybody wants to be a part of, but it's our club now. And we work with what we have. I think it's, it's a beautiful relationship, of course, and it's bittersweet because I wish we would have had this relationship before May 24th. Um, but I don't know how I would be getting through any of these days without them. When I talked to these women, you know, they were smiling and they were, you know, in a, in a very good mood, which was the first time I actually saw them that way, you know, sharing a meal together, uh, sharing anecdotes together. And I realized just how special they are to each other. I have to say I was really looking forward to this point in the day. How they forged this relationship that was, you know, born from this horrible tragedy. How they found each other. Some of them knew each other, some of them didn't. They knew maybe of each other. Because there's a lot of times that we feel alone. You know, even if there's a hundred people in the room, you still feel alone. Um, but I don't feel that when I'm with them. They support each other in a way that's very special. If there's a bad day, the rest of them are there, either with a text or with a call or in person. They share special family moments. They share secrets. Yeah, it's like an unspoken connection. And when I sat and talked to them, you know, it, it just seems so natural how they just look at each other and how they feel so much support from each other. And, you know, one thing that surprised me is that they said not even a family member can represent what these other women represent to me. Each one of them agreed with that. Oh, definitely. Outside my husband and my children, these are the only people I talk to about this. How about this. the rest of you? My family is completely understanding and they've supported me 100%. However, they have not lost a child. So I know I've had Kim message me out of the blue, um, thinking of you, I love you, and she has no idea how much that, that helped me. They said because a family member wants to fix it, and you can't fix this. All we need is somebody that understands, that understands exactly what we're going through. And unless you've been through it, you can't understand it. You can't fix this. So I think that is where I reach to y'all because I just want to be heard and I just want someone who understands. Only these women understand. Um, I feel that connection with them because of the girls. And I feel like if I don't talk to them, like I'm missing a part of tests. It's just like I told them, we always want to say to someone that goes through this, I feel your pain because we want to make them feel better. But, you know, we really cannot feel their pain. I sometimes like to think that it's the relationship our children would have had. had. Yeah. When they're together, they actually laugh. They actually enjoy each other's company. They say, you know, our, our daughters would be very happy if they saw us here. You know, they would be all for this. As we it's, sit here, I think Lexi's there, mm-hmm. Jackie's here, Tessa and Mike's here. Mm-hmm. You know, I, yeah. it's just a weird thought, but it's one of those weird thoughts that I hope that you guys have, understand. Yes. <laughs> And because they have forged this very special relationship, because they can take the time and they think it's okay to be able to laugh, they be, to be able to support each other and talk about these things, because it's not all grief. When we're in the outside world, you feel judged, you feel guilty. No, we feel guilty already for everything that we do. You said you already feel guilty. Why? She's not here. Our kids aren't here. They don't get to enjoy what they used to enjoy. So when you say you feel guilty that's where i feel guilty how, how am i laughing so hard at something or how am i why am i 
I'm happy and she's not here, but I'm happy in this moment, I'm happy. It's like new, the new happy. Yeah. So, yeah, right? yeah, so we're, we're never happy again. Yeah, this it's new just like happy. this new kind of happy. This is the yeah. new happy. <laughs> you walked the streets with them looking at these murals of their daughters up on the wall. Describe those murals to us. The murals are something that is so, so special to them and to the community, but especially to them. I love the murals. Huh? Yeah, the murals really are nice. my favorite part. Yeah. Um, you would think that Maybe they don't want any reminders of what happened. But on the contrary, all these women said that one of the most joyful moments of their lives now, of their everyday lives, is being able to go to those murals and see and see them and see their daughters. Yes. And she just looks at peace. The way these murals um, are painted is depicting different parts of their kids' lives. But she always had her hair like that. She always put her hair behind her ear. Yeah. Just like, it's where your attention goes. Uh -huh. It's like, that's Jackie. One of them maybe loved baseball, so there's a baseball there. They liked hearts, so there's hearts all over. It's really neat. Like, the little tentacles, it's a heart. So I, I guess you could say that their whole life is portrayed in each one of their murals. And their dreams. Exactly. I told him kind of what my vision was, uh -huh. and then when he came and brought me this, I was like crying. In fact, one of the things they said during the, our conversation that day is that they feel that the best thing they can do on the one-year mark is just walk through there. Yeah, like if I have to go somewhere, it's the murals because yeah. there's a little bit of joy, right? It's yes. just, they're beautiful. And just have a vigil and walk through those streets and, and just look at each one of the murals. They also suggested that maybe this is an activity we should do more often. We can come and have our coffee here. We can come and have happy hour here. We can just walk these streets and, and just enjoy looking at our daughters because it brings them so much joy. Have they expressed to you at all, Marielena, that it gets easier over time? It does not. They have talked about it, and not only has it not gotten easier for them, but they told me that some of the parents from Sandy Hook, for example, it's been so many years, uh, have told them it doesn't get easier. These women are still so broken, and it could be 10, 20 years later. And they don't lie to you either. You know, they, I say it myself, I just saw one this past weekend, and, and she's like, I'm not going to lie. She's like, it's not going to get better. It's like, it's going to get harder. The pain will always be there. And I think that's why this relationship that they have forged is so important because if it's even just for you know a few hours or a few moments they know that they can rely on each other and that this will be a relationship that will last forever uh, no matter where life takes them although they all plan to stay in Uvalde for now who knows if five ten years down the road they might change their minds but they know that they can rely on each other. Marilena Salinas thank you very much. Thank you, Michelle. It's my pleasure. One of the Uvalde moms you just heard from in the group, Ana Rodriguez, keeps a glass box in her house with a pair of those Converse shoes her daughter was wearing the day she was shot and killed. ABC Sherry Preston has more on her story. Over the last year, ABC News producer Ismael Estrada has been on the ground in Texas as a part of ABC News' Uvalde 365 project. There he embedded with the survivors, educators, and families who lost loved ones in the shooting, getting to know them and spending time with them as they work through their grief. Someone who spent years in Uvalde, Texas growing up because it was his hometown is actor Matthew McConaughey. 
Ismail was watching TV shortly after the killings when McConaughey showed up in the White House briefing room alongside his wife, who sat on the side of the room holding that pair of green Converse tennis shoes. Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre introduced them. So um, I'd like to welcome Matthew and Camilla McConaughey to, um, to the White House today. It was really moving when, when Matthew McConaughey, whose hometown is Uvalde, Texas, spoke at the White House podium in the press room and talked about each of these students that were killed that day. We start by giving McKenna, Layla, Miranda, Nevaeh, Jose, Javier, Tesro, Helio, Eliana, Annabelle, Jackie, Azuya, JC, Jayla, Ava, Amory, and Lexi. We start by giving all of them our promise that their dreams are not going to be forgotten. And one of them that he talked about was a little girl named Maite, Maite Rodriguez, who was 10 years old. And this pair of green Converse tennis shoes. Wore these every day. Green Converse with a heart on the right toe. Tell me more about those tennis shoes themselves and Maite, because you spent a lot of time with her family and her mother, Anna, right? Anna is um, one of the most wonderful human beings you could possibly imagine being around. She is so kind. My family has been my backbone through everything. And I know that they love Maite and they love those shoes. The shoes are something that were just so, as a parent, you understand how these moments happened. They happen to be shopping one day. Maite sees these green converse, lime green converse on the bottom of a rack and says, Mom, can I have these shoes? And and Anna looked at her and said, well, of, of course, if you really want them, they're kind of ugly. There's these lime green converse. Maite absolutely loved them. Uh, she wore them every day since the day I bought them. A couple days later, you know, when I had found out she had drawn a black heart on the right toe, I was a little upset with her. You know, I said, I just got them for you. All she said was, I, I think it looks pretty, Mom. Just the kindness of a kid, and that's kind of what Anna saw it as just this sweetness of the kid who wanted to have a heart on her shoe. But it is amazing to Anna how much this has become a symbol of the tragedy. It makes me feel really good. It makes me feel that she, you know, really did impact people's lives. Matthew McConaughey bringing the attention about these shoes and this tragedy in such a powerful way almost. It was like the first moment that people really saw a face to the name by introducing Maite there. It, it gave us a way to, to see the human side of this tragedy. As those shoes, every single thing that was on him represents who she was. Anna's very, very thankful about that. When she saw that happening, she was talking to Maite. She talks about how she told Maite, look what you've done. This is People are going to remember you. And she keeps them in a, in a glass case in her home. Yeah, in a glass case in her home listening to the interview that you did with her um, and talking with her, you know, it's clear that this is a grief that is never going to go away. No, it'll never go away. First thing that pops in my head in the morning is her and how she's not to the right side of me anymore. It's as painful now, if not more, than it was on the first day. I just think about the day she's she's not going to come home from school. She won't have dinner with us. Those thoughts just consume me. She doesn't see a future without Maite. Um, she tries to live through her other children as well as we all do with our own children. But it's very difficult because Maite was such a centerpiece to their whole family. And it just may happen to you. 
This is inevitable. It will happen again. It's just a matter of time. Looking to the future of Uvalde and and the town and, and the people there, what would you say the overwhelming thought is? Is it one of still grief and sadness? Or is there a sense of hope in that community yet? There is a grief and sadness amongst the families. But there's also a, an anger and a call for accountability. Unlike any other of these stories we've ever covered before, for the families, they, be- they haven't achieved accountability in this town. And they're not going to be happy until they do. They will continue to fight. They will continue to march. They will continue to be angry. And that has um, some in the community very upset. And they want the community to go back to what it was before May 24th. So I don't know how that changes. Well, listen, I really want to thank you for talking to us about what you've experienced and the families of Uvalde because it means an awful lot-ish. Thank you. Thank you. Uvalde's agony is made worse knowing the precise reason for the massacre will never be known. Because the gunman is dead, there will be no trial, no jailhouse interview, no deathbed confession from the only person who knows with any certainty why it happened. The parents who lost children and the husbands who lost wives on that day at Robb Elementary have only the vague concept of accountability. ABC's Jim Ryan says the search for peace in Uvalde involves a thorough look, not at the shooting itself, but at the response when the violence unfolded. Computer award goes out to Maite Rodriguez. The morning of May 24, 2022 was highlighted by the end-of-the-year award ceremony at Robb Elementary School. Most IXL skills master- Students in the lunchroom received certificates and praise from their principal as proud moms and dads captured video on their phones. Torres and Jordan. It was the last time that some parents would see their kids alive. We have a few students. The first call to 911 on May 24, 2022 was about a single vehicle crash. There was just an accident right here behind Robb's school. They ran into the ditch. It's a pickup truck. It was 11.28 in the morning, and the town of Uvalde, Texas, was about to face its worst nightmare. He just jumped over the fence. He's running towards the school. He's wearing black. Please, 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 please. Yes, sir, we have multiple units heading out that wing. Fourth grade teacher Arnulfo Arnie Reyes. I look at the wall, pieces falling off the wall, like, and that's when I realized that the loud bangs is a gun. That's when he shot my arm. I just remember just falling to the ground, and then he came up to the front and shot my kids after that. All 11 children who were in Reyes' class that morning would die at the hands of a teenaged gunman who spent his final 77 minutes slaughtering 19 students and two teachers. He fires off at least 100 rounds in over two and a half minutes inside rooms 111 and 112. My students were asking me, "What you know? what's going on? What's that noise? Like... It couldn't be. Approximately seven minutes after the first call was placed, police were inside the building. But when they, too, came under fire, they retreated down the hallway to wait for backup. Among the first officers into the school was Uvalde School District Police Chief Pete Arredondo, who tried negotiating with the gunman. Please put your firearm down, sir. We don't want anybody else hurt. He later orders an evacuation of kids and teachers from other parts of the school. In an interview with the FBI, he said... In the preservation of life around... Everything around him, I felt, was priority because I know there's probably going to be some deceased in there, but we don't need any more from out here. So I called out and I said, get these kids out. Clearly, the failure right at the beginning was the inability of the officers on the scene 
to continue to engage the subject till he was neutralized, period. If you don't immediately confront that active shooter, lives are going to be lost. Colonel Steve McCraw is the director of the Texas Department of Public Safety. We've learned that lesson you know, from Columbine, and the doctrine since then has been in an active shooter situation is to immediately locate the subject, isolate him, and neutralize him. Because of Arredondo's title as school district police chief and because he gave the order to evacuate other classrooms, arriving officers assumed that Pete Arredondo was in charge of the response at Robb Elementary School. Texas DPS Director Colonel Steve McCraw. There's no question about it that he was the on-scene commander in the hallway. Arredondo later told the Texas Tribune that he did not believe he was in command that day. Former acting Undersecretary of Homeland Security and now ABC News contributor John Cohen says that was the first major law enforcement flaw. No one performed the basic function that's needed in an incident such as this to take command and control over the situation. In fact, the first mistake arguably came 20 minutes before the gunman arrived at Robb Elementary School when he sent a text to a friend saying he had just shot his grandmother and was on his way to shoot up a school. Former Texas Supreme Court Justice Eva Guzman. Anytime there is criminal activity this close to a school, there ought to be an effort to immediately notify the school. Guzman sat on a special Texas House committee charged with investigating the Uvalde mass shooting. The decision to focus on evacuating rooms where the gunman was not was based on the assumption that the shooter was by himself in room 111 and the adjoining room 112, either because students and teachers had gotten out or because they were already dead. Then came a phone call from inside the massacre. Can you tell me your name? Chloe Torres was trapped in room 112. We've spoken about uh, things like this happening uh, around our nation. Give them scenarios, what would they do, you know. Ruben Torres is Chloe's father. He later learned that his daughter played dead by smearing the blood of her classmates on her own body. To put the blood on her, you know, I find it amazing, you know, that my 10-year-old at that time, like, just thought about that. The call from Chloe Torres does more than offer a terrifying view of what was happening inside room 112. John Cohen. That information should have been taken in by the call taker, should have been immediately relayed to the incident commander, who should have used that information to understand that this was still an active shooter event. The call taker does forward that information out to the scene. We do have a child on the line. The room 12 child is advising he is in the room full of victims, full of victims at this moment. The child just called if they have victims in there. We called 911. Okay, Chloe's going to be, it's going to be Chloe. Uh, she's in room 112, And still, Uvalde City and school district police officers waited for backup from state and federal resources, including Customs and Border Protection, which has a presence in Uvalde. For more than an hour, officers, many in full tactical gear, stood in the hallway outside room 112 at Robb Elementary. In a later interview with the FBI, Uvalde School Police Chief Pete Arredondo said that during that time... There's certain... I heard him reload. I did hear that at one time. I don't know if it, there was a second. Another potential opportunity lost, says former acting Undersecretary of Homeland Security and ABC consultant John Cohen. If a law enforcement officer hears a suspect reloading their firearm, it should say two things to that officer. One, that the threat is not over, and two, 
that may be an opportunity to immediately breach and engage. The massacre at Robb Elementary School was the sixth during Governor Greg Abbott's seven and a half years in office. There have been others since, including the slaughter of more than half a dozen shoppers at a suburban Dallas outlet mall and the killing of five members of one family in Houston. In the hours after the Uvalde mass shooting, Abbott initially praised the actions of the hundreds of law enforcers who made their way to the school. They showed amazing courage by running toward gunfire for the singular purpose of trying to save lives. Comments he was later forced to revise after hearing from his DPS director, Steve McCraw. The idea that this was an heroic and well done and well and effective and efficient operation was not the case. And when we determined that it was not the case, we reported otherwise. In the final assessment, says McCraw, we failed to prevent it from happening. And I say failed, and I said we, and I said the law enforcement community, because collectively we did. As horrific as the shooting and as chaotic as the response was on that day, Uvalde already has added chapters to law enforcement training manuals, chapters on what not to do. Ten months after the tragedy at Robb Elementary. We think we hear gunshots. think you hear gunshots. Okay. Is that at Covenant School? Yes. A 28-year-old former student at a private school in Nashville walked into the building armed with two rifles and a handgun and started shooting. Detective Sergeant James Mathis was one of the first inside Covenant School. We got to a second floor hallway. Um, once in that hallway, the smell of gunpowder was in the air. Former acting Undersecretary of Homeland Security John Cohen. They move in a well-organized, tactically proficient way. Uh, they operate with a sense of urgency and purpose as they go room to room to room searching for the suspect. When they hear gunshots, they move rapidly but in a safe manner to where those gunshots are coming from. They engage the suspect. They neutralize the suspect. Stop moving! Two officers, Detective Michael Colosso and Officer Rex Engelbert, fired the fatal shots that ended the shooting spree at the Covenant School. Detective Colosso. It's tough, um, but our department's done a phenomenal job. Our support doesn't just go towards the officers, it goes to the family. Police-worn body cameras captured a well-rehearsed, efficient, and quick response and a command structure that snapped into place. Tennessee State Representative Bo Mitchell. The Metro Police Department, they did a wonderful job. They got to the scene in 13 to 14 minutes and eliminated the threat. But six people still died when they did everything perfect. John Cohen says comparisons between the two incidents are unavoidable. In Nashville, he says. They did it right. They did it exactly how they were trained to do it and how we hope they do it um, once they receive that training. Back in Uvalde, meanwhile, Eva Guzman, who sat on the legislative panel that investigated the police response to Uvalde, found a fatal lack of leadership. We know that if there had not been these systemic failures, that if one person had responded differently at any moment, maybe the outcome could have been different. And Texas Department of Public Safety Director Steve McCraw says the failures at Uvalde might be more than just poor training or lack of leadership. My belief is there's possible criminal culpability. There's malfeasance committed that particular day. And from our standpoint, looking at every officer and looking internally at our own officers, is that you know, what did they know? When did they hear? When did they arrive? What did they do? For families of the victims, the what-ifs are agonizing. Gloria Casares, 10-year-old daughter Jackie, and 10-year-old niece Annabelle Rodriguez are two of the 19 children killed. If the cops would have gone in when they should have, 
then my daughter would still be here with me today. And remember Chloe Torres, the brave little girl who called 911 from inside the classroom where the gunman had shot so many of her classmates. Her father, Ruben, says his daughter is a different person. She does have survivor's guilt. I hate to say it, but like, she really don't care anymore like about doing the little things that she used to do, you know. She just wants to be stuck at home. After losing her daughter Tess in the Robb Elementary School massacre, Veronica Mata is lobbying the Texas legislature for change. She is a kindergarten teacher at a different school and terrified about the prospect of another attack. It's already hard enough to get up to go to work every single day. And then when you, I'm at school and I'm in my classroom and then you hear that there's another shooting. And I sit there and I look at my kids in my classroom and I wonder, is that going to be us next time? Mata and her husband visited the Texas Capitol every week of the last session, lobbying for changes in gun laws in hopes of preventing another Robb Elementary School massacre. Jim Ryan, ABC News. Michelle? Families and community members have spent the year making the 160-mile journey from Uvalde to Austin to make their voices heard at the state capitol. Teacher Arnie Reyes's world changed forever when a gunman stormed his classroom. The teacher telling fourth grade students to get under tables and act like you're asleep. I look at the wall, pieces falling off the wall, like, and that's when I realized that the loud bangs is a gun. Reyes was shot several times and survived. His 11 students did not. I just remember just falling to the ground and then he came up to the front and shot my kids after that. The veteran teacher dedicating his life to all 19 children and two faculty members killed that day. Reyes is now an advocate for gun reform and a critic of the law enforcement response. It is an honor and privilege to be here today to represent the 21 lives lost. Tomas Navia is an investigative producer with ABC News and part of the team on the ground in Uvalde since the mass shooting. Tomas, thanks for joining us. Reyes has a very unique and haunting account from the mass shooting. What can you tell us of the time that you've spent there on the ground with him about his injuries and how he's healing? You know, it's been a very long road to recovery, and he is still recovering now. Um, He was shot twice, once in his arm and once in his back. Uh, Immediately after the incident, he had to be rushed to a hospital, and he's been receiving treatment with um, Brook Army Medical Center, which is a trauma one-level sort of center that deals with people in our military who get injured. And then what about uh, your range of motion at home? Are you doing any home exercises? Yes. Um, I followed him to a doctor's appointment several months ago. You know, they talked about his recovery, and, and his doctor's goal at this point is to be able to get his left hand to make a fist. So like one knuckle at a time, right? Mm-hmm. You can have someone else. There was so much swelling after the surgeries that, you know, he couldn't move his fingers. That's how we'll get that passive motion back because they're just like so stiff still. Now he has more motion. He has more feeling. Some of the nerves are waking up. He's still trying to get to a point where he can fully close his left hand. So that's a big part of his physical recovery. In terms of his emotional recovery, you know, he, I think over time has come to realize the lasting impact that this mass shooting has had on him. You know, he laid on the floor for 77 minutes, bleeding out. You know, he would taunt me. He would, you know, splash blood on my face and everything. And so I think he assumed that I was still alive, so he shot me in the back. He feels like law enforcement abandoned him. They have all the 
tactical gear, bulletproof vests, guns. I have a pencil. It's not the same battle. This pain, he's trying to turn it into purpose. We're here in Austin to talk against gun violence. He has become an advocate. He's become a voice, not only for himself, but for his students. Yeah, so I think his journey and relationship with activism, like with all of his recovery, has sort of gone up and down. I have not done as much activism as I would like to, of course, because I've been in recovery. He was a very early critic publicly of the police response to what happened on May 24th, 2022. You know, he was still in his hospital bed when he was giving interviews to the media, telling his accounts. We trained our kids to sit under the table. And that's what I thought of, you know, at the time. But we set them up to be like ducks. You can give us all the training you want, but gun laws have to change. But over time, as he has become both emotionally and physically stronger, he has felt that he can speak up more. Mr. Reyes. Good afternoon. I come here today to let the governor know that expanding guns into schools will not make it safer. Um, You know, he wants to use whatever strength he has to make sure that his students and co-workers are not forgotten. What is the long-term battle, you think, for Reyes on a personal level and then also dealing with gun violence? It's something he's going to have to deal with his whole life. You know, he feels very lucky to have survived, but he's also very aware of the hole that this mass shooting has left in the families of those who have lost loved ones. You know, I think it's something he'll carry with him forever. Tomas, thank you very much. Thank you so much. The community of Uvalde now beginning the second year of healing and adapting to a new normal. The pain and ripple effect of gun violence in Uvalde echoes throughout the nation. There have been more mass shootings so far in the U.S. in 2023 compared to the same time last year. As of May, the Gun Violence Archive has logged more than 200 mass shootings in towns, businesses, malls, churches, and schools across the country. Uvalde 365 was presented by ABC News correspondent Michelle Franson and produced by Trevor Hastings in collaboration with the ABC News investigative team. This has been a special presentation from ABC News.